Good evening. I'd like to begin by saying I'm thankful for the prayer on my behalf and the prayer in general, lots of things said in the prayer. I encourage you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Luke 14. We're going to spend a little bit of time there this evening. It seems like I've been asked several times, more and more here recently, what I could spend 25 to 30 minutes talking about with little prep. Which is an amusing question to me, because the house I grew up in, um, we, we enjoy talking. And if you've spent much time around me in private, especially one-on-one setting, you know I like to talk and can spend a lot of time talking, particularly about biblical topics. The topic I want to cover this evening is something that has been on my mind for a while. It has numerous things that have led to this topic, and as such, I may struggle to stay on point exactly this evening, and so if we do, I apologize. There's a lot behind this sermon, and it's a lot of things that I have considered in my life over the past two or three years, particularly as we've gone through the pandemic. Um... I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that, but it it made me step back and reconsider some things about my life, about what the Christian response to this world should be. So, from that thought process and the thought of how a Christian should live day to day, it occurred to me several times recently in hearing prayers here and in other places and other settings People thanking God for the day of life. And if you've been around me very much at all, this is something I've talked about recently in in several settings. Why are we thanking God for another day of life? Now, I think it's good to do that. Don't get me wrong, and I'm not here to pick on anyone. That is just a statement that made me step back and think a little bit. As I'm praying with the person leading the prayer, stop to consider As we've gone through the holiday season, I had an opportunity to think about some things um, that my cousin called chasing the light through the darkness. And this time of year, there's extended periods of darkness in our world, um, literal darkness because the sun sets quicker, the way our earth is tilted on its axis. That darkness can be depressing to people. And then we have the holidays and Going through that time of year and considering my dad, this is his first Christmas without mom and the difficulty that he had in that. And then moving on through that thought process and how materialistic our world is and the ads are amazing as we move into the Christmas holidays and you've got to haves, right? The circulars that hit the newspaper like crazy. The ads on all of your internet browsing, just constant stuff in your face, got to haves. Lots of people thank God that they're alive today because they have the opportunity to go chase more stuff in this life. Why do Christians thank God for another day to live? There's a thought process that the Apostle Paul had that we'll get into later in this sermon, but that's a question I hope to address as we go throughout this talk. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse number 26, and we'll set the stage for this. Christ has been at a feast, at a, um, a gathering. And this is where he's given the teaching not to take the highest place in a gathering. 
Seat yourself lower that you may be called up and have honor among those that are at the dinner, especially those that are at your table. They'll see and esteem you with honor. <coughs> this is where, and, and then Christ has been told, blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Christ gives a parable of the great dinner. Man prepares a great dinner, invites those to come. And they begin with one consent to make excuse. I've bought oxen, I've bought land, and I've married a woman. I can't come, have me excused. As he comes to the end of that, and I don't know that settings change, it's hard to tell in this. In verse 26, rather verse 25 says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross, own cross, and come after me cannot be my disciple. So we'll stop right here in this reading and, and allow Jesus' words to sink in. This is not a statement of difficulty. It's a statement of impossibility. If you don't love me more than everything else in this life, it's not going to be hard to be a disciple. It's not going to be difficult. You're not going to have a hard time. You cannot be my disciple. It's a value statement given by Jesus. You have to value me above everything in this life. And this is, again, immediately following, at least in, our, in the recording, the parable of the Great Supper, these people in the parable had things they valued more than going to that great feast. They valued their own things more than they valued the invitation and the one that gave it. <clears throat> Jesus says, if you don't love me more than everything, you cannot be my disciple. He goes on to say in verse 28, For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else when the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and desires and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever among you, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. <clears throat> I want to approach this from a different way than I've heard it taught in the past, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm the first person to have done this. I'm sure I'm not. I can't recall having heard it. I want to approach this from the position of the value that Jesus saw. That he is greater than everything in this life. As we consider the cost this evening, I want to consider the cost of the things that the world places value on. The temporal. This life. The things we see and know and have and feel. And it was funny as David or as Brent got started this morning, I kind of started to squirm in my pew a little bit. I thought he's about to preach my sermon. But I think they'll balance off of each other really well this evening. 
And I'll, I'll try not to half-soul things he talked about and, and stay on point with this topic, but that idea that he talked about today, getting wrapped up in the things of this life, and there are things that we assign great value to, things that have meaning in this life, things that get us wrapped up. But it's usually things that affect us. I will tell you, as a person that is adopted, the topic of abortion is one that has been on my mind for a long time, and I can make a lot of comparisons between child sacrifice that we see in the Old Testament and what we do in our society today. But that's not the fight. There's a different value proposition that I put on life because of who God is and my understanding of that and what the world does because of who their God is. And that's what Christ is getting at. Count the cost. If you're going to come to Christ, you need to come to Him with the understanding that He is worth everything that you have to give up in this life. Everything that you can, that you can give in this life. In other parables, the parable of the pearl of great price, He says the, the one that found the pearl sold everything that he had to obtain this. The one that began the tower, if he understood the value of the tower, would have given everything. What are we holding back from God? Whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. What's hold, what are we allowed to hold back from God? Now, if we're going to follow God in the way that He would have us to do, He governs every part of our life. Mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, children, employers and employees, and I think Brent did a really good job of covering that today. We're not called to fix this world. He didn't tell slave owners to let their slaves go. He didn't tell slaves to flee, but rather to live their life in a way that was demonstration of God's power in them. To endure that persecution and suffering. For masters to serve or to treat their slaves as they understood God was master over them. An interesting thing follows this passage in verse 34. It says, Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I have pondered over this, and I'm not going to tell you I've got the right understanding. As I've studied this and, and gone over this passage again and again and again in my head, <clears throat> I think he's making a comparison here of what a thing is made for. Salt is made to savor and preserve. If it's lost that, it's useless. Humanity was made to serve God. To reciprocate God's love that he gave to us back to him. To be filled up with that love and to demonstrate that love back to him and to one another. If we're not doing that, if we're putting something else in the place of God, we're salt that's lost its savor. It's out of place. It's 
inconvenient. It's, it's just not right. I don't know that I've ever got a hold of salt that was bad, that wasn't stuck in the jar where you couldn't, or in the shaker where you couldn't shake it out. But that salt that was stuck in the shaker, I didn't take the time to lick and see how it was. I threw it out. It wasn't right. Humanity was made to serve God. Nothing goes before Him. As we consider this life, consider the value proposition that is put before us. What is it that God's asking from us? Everything. Verse 33, Whoever does not deny all that he has, give up, forsake all that he has, can't be my disciple. What is he asking? What is our everything? The book of Isaiah chapter 64 says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like wind have taken us away. Now, this area of Isaiah is very specific to Israel and their iniquities before God. And I'm not trying to take that out of context, but if we consider the rest of the, the, this chapter, particularly of Isaiah, where Isaiah declares that the righteousnesses of Israel are like filthy rags, I think we can fit there. We haven't followed God. There's none that seek after Him. And the reason their righteousness is like filthy rags is because they're tainted by the corruption in the world. The best that we have to offer without God, on our own, of ourselves, is tainted by the corruption of the world and the temporariness of it. So in the value proposition, what has God asked from us? It's our everything, but without God, it amounts to nothing. And we grasp and cling to the nothingness of this life because we're stuck in the wrong end of the value proposition. We can't see the greatness that is before us, that is offered to us freely, that for which we were created, because we want to hold on to those empty rags. God won't fill a clenched fist. It's not that He can't. It's not that He couldn't make us open our hand, but He allows us to, to clasp and to cling. All of the best that we have is like filthy rags. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse number 2, says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to glory, called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. God has asked us to give up all of our nothing. All of our nothing, so that He can give us everything. You have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. been made partakers of the divine nature. 
we talk about seeking greener pastures, always chasing greener pastures, and we see that a lot in our world. Never content, never happy, always reaching. I have people that ask me all the time, why do those that are in power always seek more power? Why do those who have the most money always seek more money? Because they're chasing things that are corrupted. They're trying to fill a God-shaped hole in their life with things that are from this life, and it will never work. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has made everything beautiful in its time and has put eternity in their hearts, yet not so that they may know what shall come after them. God put eternity within us. He made us to know Him. We fill that eternity within us, and people fill it with lust, they fill it with desire, seeking to fill that up, and they can't. They're chasing a divine nature, and they don't understand it, because they're grasping to the nothingness of this life. And it's easy to look at those that have the most and say, why are they doing that? But how about those of us a little further down the line? What are we grasping to in this life and telling God, I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to keep this part as mine. If there's something in your life like that, that is something that maybe not is, Maybe is not now, but has the potential to come between you and God. Lost control up here, Mark. Would you bump me forward one? And I apologize, I've been looking here. I don't know how hard that is for some of you guys to read. This is not from the Bible. It's not from an inspired author. It's from an apologist that wrote in the 40s and 50s named C.S. Lewis. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis was not inspired. He just was a lot better penman than I am. This is from a, a writing called The Weight of Glory. And I felt like he nailed my thought process here. All of the nothingness we're trying to hold on to is like a child making mud pies in a slum because we can't understand what is meant by a holiday at the sea. A child wants what's right here. It's easy. It's right here. Why would I want to leave? They don't know what the sea is. They don't know what a holiday is. I'm I'm not going to change. I'm going to keep what I've got right here. I know this. When we don't mature in our thought processes, we don't learn to value the future and the transcendent, things that are outside and above us. We're like that child. Because what's been offered is impossible to truly comprehend. 
What we seek is hard to truly comprehend. The greener pastures we're looking for is nothing short of existence in the dwelling of God. But how do you explain that to someone? Outside of by showing them that everything they've ever chased in this life has been futile and empty. And it's left them wanting something else. It will never fill them up. Because we're chasing something we haven't seen. So we have this measure of value. We talk about sacrifice. And it's another one of those common topics that's discussed in different places, different ways. But it's not a topic that is unknown in the Scripture. Ephesians 5, 14-17 says, Therefore, he says, Awake, you who asleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Human beings appear to be the only creatures on this earth that have the ability to comprehend the future. We, we ponder the future. Sometimes we think about the future in a way that causes us to fret and have anxiety. Sometimes we think about the future, as James tells us, and we just, these are the things I'm going to do, not considering God in our calculus. But we have that ability to consider the future. Paul tells the church in Ephesus to consider the future. Now, I'm kind of a word person. I, I don't know why. I just I love words. And there's a word in this passage that has always just kind of scratched at my mind a little bit. Every time it's been read. To redeem the time. Well, that word redeem is the same word that's used when, it's talk, when it talks about how Christ redeemed us. Well, I know what it means when Christ redeemed me. He saved me from loss. I was in a lost state, case Christ came and died and paid a ransom for me and purchased my salvation. So what does it mean to redeem the time? And again, I'm not going to purport that I have the answer to this. I have something that has helped it make sense in my head. Redeem means to buy up, that is ransom, figuratively to rescue from loss or improve opportunity. To redeem. In light of what we're talking about, it's that measure of value. Time is the only thing we all share in common, absolutely share in common in this life. We all have the same number of hours in every day. Now, we're not all given the same amount of years, but that doesn't matter. What do you do with the time that you have? What do you do with the time in which you thank God for having another day to live? Are you buying that time up and improving the value by giving the time here in this life to make deposits in eternity? As I read this, it's helped me to think of this as 
Paul's rewording of what Christ said in Matthew 6, verse 19 and 20. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust doth corrupt nor thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We cling to this life and to the time that we have, and time is precious. I'm one of those people, I've always had more time than money, and time for me has been extremely precious to spend with my family and with my kids. have a tendency to hoard my time and consider it one of those things that God understands if I hold that back from Him a little bit. But I'm not redeeming that time. I'm not giving it its highest and best value if I'm holding it back from God. Again, not that God doesn't want us to be good parents and have good relationships and do a good job at our jobs and all of those things are important in value of God and what He wants and expects from us. But are we doing that with the purpose of giving that to God? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 through 4, it says, For we know if, that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in this body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well, pleased rather, to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear to be before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what He has done, whether good or bad. <coughs> and so when we're going to move into some things that the Apostle Paul said about this life. And plain and simple, Bullet down to the, the very essence of his statement, it is better to be with Christ than to be alive in this life. That is not a sentiment held by our society. Because this life is the highest and best good that many will know. Paul understood the value proposition. He understood why he was living this life. This life was for the betterment of his brothers and sisters, to do the will and the work of Christ, to be made a fellow laborer with Christ in God's plan of salvation. But he was ready to go. He was willing to forsake all for God. What was Paul holding back? What could this world threaten him with? Brent talked about liberty this morning, and that's an idea I've had over the past couple of years also, the idea of liberty. And the truth of the matter is, you're at liberty no matter what. That gun-to-the-head proposition doesn't matter. You always have choice. And there is nothing as liberating 
as having nothing to lose. And I'll go a step further than that. There's nothing more liberating than having everything to gain. Everything to gain. The Apostle Paul was willing to let it all go. While he was here, he was going to thank God for opportunities to, to do good in his kingdom. But when it was his time to go, he understood the value proposition. To be made partaker of the divine nature. To be free of the corruption of this world. What was he holding back? To what was he holding on? He goes on to better explain this in the book of Philippians chapter 1. He says, For, an immediate, for, me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between these two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. This is a tough place to come to. I have considered the temporariness of life. Seems like that's always something I've understood well in my life. How fragile this life is. And there is not a thing in the world that I can do that would help prepare my children if I pass tomorrow. You just can't prepare for that kind of thing. Not in a way that would be feel beneficial. Now Paul didn't have that concern. He did have the concern of the care of all the churches, he said, that came upon him daily. And while he was alive in this flesh... He was going to do that work so that he felt like at the end of his life he had done everything he could do to prepare those people for him being gone. But where he was, he said, I don't know what I would choose. If the choice was mine, I don't know what I'd choose. It is better to be with Christ. What a statement. And that is absolutely a far cry from our society and the world. It's estimated that $4 trillion were spent in the United States last year on health care. $4 trillion on health care. And that doesn't save your life, that just keeps you from dying right then. Because all those people that spent money on health care are still going to pass away. And not that you shouldn't do that. There's value proposition in that as well. It's not the point of the sermon. We spend a lot of money to stay alive a little longer is the point. Some people spend lots of money to stay alive longer. Where's the value in it? You'll bump me again, Mark. In Mark, the 8th chapter, beginning in verse 34, it says, Now when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. If you're going to come to Christ, count the cost and understand that he is worth more. There is nothing in this world that is of greater value. Not everything aggregate in this world is of greater value than Christ and having that life and that home in heaven. He said, if you're willing to lose your life, as he said in the book of Luke, forsake all that you have, then you can be my disciple. There's nothing in this world that you're willing to put before me. Another interesting word in this, would bump me one more mark. That word deny means literally to disown. Now this is something we understand from other passages. You are not your own, you're bought with a price. But when we deny ourselves, it means we literally disown ourselves. Our wants, our desires, our goals, everything in this life is now subject to the will of God. We willingly forfeit our life. Give it to God. But what is the value proposition? All of our nothingness, all of our filthy rags... We lay at His feet, and He lays upon us Himself. The fullness of Him that fills all in all. What more in this life could you want? What more is there? There's not. But you have to be willing to disown yourself. He gives the value proposition. What? is in this world that's greater than me? Or what would you give to get your soul back? He's asking the question, what are you holding back from me? If you're old enough to understand this saying of Christ, you're old enough to have given your soul away. To have traded it to the one who will bargain, which is Satan. Satan wants to bargain. You do this and I'll, I'll give you that. God can't bargain because He's dealing in truth. He's dealing in the absolute that is Himself. What are you willing to give to secure your soul back? Are we going to bargain with God? The idea of sacrifice goes back to the book of Genesis. The story of Cain and Abel, the account of Cain and Abel and their sacrifice, Genesis Genesis chapter 4, it says, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering and fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat, 
And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. I'm going to make some inferences, and you can take it or leave it. This is something, this is a story I think about a lot. Now, we know that by faith, Abel offered more excellent sacrifice unto God that was pleasing to God. The, the difference in the two sacrifices was Abel offered by faith. We can infer, I hope reasonably, by Cain's response that he had an expectation. He had an expectation that God would accept his sacrifice because when that didn't happen he had unmet expectations and he encountered it the way we often encounter unmet expectations in this life he got angry I don't know what God asked for but I can put myself in Cain's position God I know this isn't what you asked for but I'm a farmer I put blood, sweat, and tears into the ground every day. I love the crops that I raise. And I want to give that to you. Cain tried to strike a bargain with God. In expectation that even though it wasn't what he asked for, because it was offered from his heart, that it would be accepted. It wasn't. There was no bargaining with God in the sacrifice that was asked for. God rejected it. Now, there are going to be people that say, well, Abraham bargained with God. Yes, Abraham bargained with God. Genesis 18. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have spoken. It is upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for the lack of five? So he said, if I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. <coughs> now, here we have an actual example of someone bargaining with God, but the situations are utterly different. Abraham's bargain with God was not for salvation of himself. It wasn't even for the salvation of the people in the city. God took the righteous out of the city. It was for something else entirely. And are we willing to stake our eternal salvation on bargaining with God? God, I know what you've asked for me is all of me. But you'll understand if I hold this little bit back because I've given you what I love. This little bit back because the rest is from the heart. Is that a reasonable expectation to have with the Creator? We see people throughout the New Testament that bargain with God, that make these trade-offs. They see a value proposition, but they can't look past the temporal. Matthew 6, 1-4 through 4 says, Take heed that you do not your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, you do 
when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may glory, have glory for men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. There is a value proposition here. They were doing charitable acts. They were doing good deeds, alms, as the King James Version says. But they reaped their reward immediately. They threw a procession in front of them. Had heralds go before them to let people know, these are the good deeds we're doing. Because we're godly. Because we're good. And the point of looking at this is seeing that value proposition. You can have your reward now. Or you can have your reward from God. And you can fill in the blank with many things from this passage or to this passage. But what reward are you seeking? Is it right now? Is it right here? Is it something in this life that you know God would have you give up and forsake, but you're holding on to? Is it something in your life that you know in your heart of hearts is fine right now, but has the potential to come between you and God? Understand the value proposition. Count the cost and know that God is greater. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, says, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in, his, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When you come to Christ, life gets new value. Things of this life should have different values. This is immediately following the things that Peter or Peter Paul has talked about. Desiring to be absent from the body, it's better to be present with the Lord. This follows that. All things become new. You are a new creation. Received a new life. Now you have what it is your life has sought. The hole is beginning to fill. Don't hold back. Everything has a different value when we come to Christ. In Galatians 5, Paul says it this way, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit... Let us also walk in the Spirit. There's your value proposition. Your life is surrendered. You've disavowed your own life, denying and disowning yourself to give the property over to God. Like Brent talked about this morning, we have liberty, but that liberty is to do in this flesh what is good and profitable for the kingdom of God. For the good of others, 
and not the good of ourselves. And I know this is something we've struggled with because from the time I was a young man, barely able to understand anything, I've heard talks and, and discussions about liberties in Christ. Well, that's a liberty of mine, leave it alone. If that's the way we're discussing it, we're looking at it wrong. What is good for the kingdom of God? That's what my life needs. That's what I need to be doing with my life because I am forfeit for the good of God to give up the nothingness of this life for the eternal weight of glory to be revealed in us. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you, brother, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. <coughs> and if I could sum it up in one word, it was a word I, I groped after for a long time in thinking about this, and it's simply surrender. To surrender. To turn it all over to God. To be more of myself because of my Creator than I could be in grasping in anything in this life. To understand that nothing else matters but God. That nothing else matters but doing good for His kingdom. To raise that white flag of my will and say, I give it to you. Do with me what you will. To look at my brothers and sisters in Christ and ask, how can I serve you? To look, look at a world of loss like Brent talked about this morning and feel that sense of loss and that pain and go, what can I do to serve them? Present your bodies a living sacrifice. And so I leave you with the question this evening, what are you holding back from God? And I'll tell you, having talked to those older than I, that it's a constant process. Renewed day by day. Desiring God to come into my heart through study of His Word to change my heart every day to desire to serve Him. And to have nothing in my life that comes before Him at all, that I may be that living sacrifice and renew my mind. If the church can be of service to you this evening, it's always our desire to do so. If we can offer prayers to our God on your behalf for strength or comfort, or if you need to come to Christ to accept His life, to give up your filthy rags and accept His goodness, we stand ready and willing to serve you. Won't you come and have a seat as we stand and as we sing?